Hello, and welcome to this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Melissa Lockett. And my name is Alec Graven. We are both Master of Public Policy candidates at the University of Oxford. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode is about the housing crisis that cities all over the world are facing and how we can craft effective policy solutions to address it. The global population is fast approaching 8 billion people, and it is projected that nearly 70% of these people will be living in urban areas by 2050. But will there be enough affordable homes for everyone? A recent study conducted by MSCI, a U.S. finance firm, examined housing markets in 97 countries and found that only four countries had affordable and available rental stock for at least half of their urban populations. As the global population continues to grow, the need for more affordable housing will be as important as ever. Housing will remain one of the most salient public policy issues facing our generation. We will be speaking with four housing experts who will share their perspectives about how we ended up in the current housing crisis and what we're able to do about it. Our first two experts, Daniel Pryor and Julieta Peruca, will be outlining ideological frameworks for thinking about the affordable housing crisis and why our current system has been unable to supply low-cost housing. Our second two guests will delve into practical approaches for supplying housing in high-income and low-income areas. Jonathan Cortell is a real estate developer in the United States who will outline the benefits and challenges of using public-private partnerships to supply housing. And Oliver Harmon is an International Growth Center Scholar of Sustainable Housing Policy in Low-Income Developing Countries. Our hope is to leave you with a well-rounded, global perspective on effective housing policy. The first guest we'd like to welcome to the show is Daniel Pryor. Daniel is the head of policy research at the Adam Smith Institute, an independent economic policy think tank based in the UK that works to promote free markets and neoliberal ideas. I spoke with Daniel about what he and the Adam Smith Institute see as the drivers of housing shortages through the lens of the all-important concept in economics, supply and demand. We'll discuss how, as the demand for housing increases without an increase in supply, ultimately the price of homes will increase. A challenge that I discuss with Daniel is the problem of nimbyism, which refers to people who say, not in my backyard, to local housing projects. If people limit housing projects in their area, then that restricts the supply and drives up the value of their homes. Thank you for joining us, Daniel. So the first thing we wanted to talk about is what an ideal future policy on addressing affordable housing would look like for the Adam Smith Institute. So would you mind just taking some time outlining if you could pick the kind of policy you would want for reaching affordable housing, what what would you decide to do with it? Sure. So I guess for the UK's context, there's a couple of major things that I'd look at. The first is something we've been going on about the ASI for years now, which is Greenbelt reform, this kind of idea of a, a stretch of land surrounding major metropolitan areas in the UK where development is very highly restricted. Uh, the justification being that it's to prevent urban sprawl and, and give access to uh, local amenities for people in cities. We're not necessarily people who buy a lot of those justifications. Um, and we think that at least even a very small amount of greenbelt land being freed up could provide space for development for millions of new homes and go a very long way to addressing what is a really acute housing shortage uh, and housing affordability crisis in the UK more so than the many other, uh, in fact, most other developed countries. Um, but more recently, I think, since Greenbelt reform is for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into quite 
politically difficult in the UK. Uh, that's an understatement if ever there was one. Uh, we've also been looking at proposals for street votes. Uh, it's basically the idea uh, of giving residents of a street the ability to decide with a majority on uh, strict rules for designs to make better use of their plots of land. Uh, and that might say, for example, be a street of people living in suburban bungalows agreeing to uh, give themselves the right to create Georgian style terraces. And that would create a lot of value creation for them. Uh, you could capture some of that through taxation and hypothecate that those revenues to the local council to improve infrastructure. Uh, so you're basically trying to create a win-win proposal where existing residents benefit from development. Uh, and that's that speaks, I think, to probably the key issue that's at the heart of the UK and many other countries' housing crises, which is that how do you create political buy-in from existing homeowners for new development when uh, traditionally they would see their house price go down if we were to increase housing supply? So that's the, the two kind of key planks of what we're trying to work on at the moment. Very interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about Greenbelt reform first. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with that issue, would you mind explaining a little bit more how it works and what the current system is like and what you'd like to change about the current system? Sure. So Greenbelt is basically uh, an area of land that's around major metropolitan areas in the UK that is given a, a certain designation that makes development on it very difficult. Uh, and this has been the case for decades now. And the original justification, the one that's still used, is that it's to prevent the kind of ever-increasing march of cities into the surrounding countryside. Uh, it's to give people access to green spaces uh, and also um, to just generally provide various environmental benefits. Um, the problem is that a lot of those things are, are simply not true or certainly not as true as are uh, often thought when you first look into them. So if you take, for example, the environmental effects, 37% of London's green belt is intensively farmed agricultural land. It's not the kind of traditional environmentally valuable land that people would discuss. But then there's the, the kind of second order effects of uh, restricting development in a kind of donut ring around major cities. Uh, and that's that you create something called leapfrog development, this idea that people still want to commute to and live and work in or as close to cities as possible. Uh, they're quite attractive places to live and work and uh, raise a family. And so what happens is that people simply situate the, themselves or around the edges of this kind of green donut uh, and commuting times are increased, pollution is increased as a result, uh, more road infrastructure and, and building is needed than would otherwise be the case. Uh, so you end up kind of undermining some of those benefits as well. Um, and our kind of proposals that we, we've made in the past, this isn't something actually we, we've been focusing on in the past few years, um, simply because it's so politically difficult, we've decided to, to try and pursue different avenues. Uh, but we, we've previously suggested that we could build 1 million new homes on 3.7% of the green belt surrounding London uh, within 10 minutes walk of a railway station. So hardly the kind of intensely radical free market proposal of let, let's scrap the planning system entirely, you know, let's do away with all rules and regulations and restrictions, a very minor tweak on a very small area of one city's greenbelt land. And yet that, that's something that, that was still met with huge opposition uh, when, when we came to it. So that's the kind of background, I guess, for the greenbelt. 
what do you see as the main source of opposition? Why, if it would build a million new homes, uh, what, where is the major source of opposition coming to that? I, I think that the major source, and it's the same with pretty much any proposal for new development in the UK. I mean, we had the, the government had um, its recent housing white paper get torpedoed on the basis that it would create too many new homes in areas of greatest housing needs. So London and the southeast in the UK, the areas where house prices are highest, it's hardest to get on the housing ladder. These are the places where you need to uh, build more homes. Uh, and yet the government's kind of narrative consistently for the past few years has been, we need to build more homes in the north and northeast where there just isn't a housing affordability crisis, but where there might not be as much local opposition. And it's very simple. It's uh, it's good old fashioned Adam Smith self-interest. Self it's this idea that people do not want to see new development around them because either it will end up reducing the value of their own house or it might create more pressure on existing public services so uh, more congestion in roads more pressure on school places etc uh, and people at the moment just aren't convinced that when it comes to uh, the benefits of development they they either don't really see what those benefits might be or they don't see how uh, they'd be compensated uh, for the kind of loss of value that they would get as a result. So this is something that, that's a long-standing problem in the UK and there hasn't really been any concerted way of getting around it. Uh, and, you know, myself and I think most people on the centre-right who are fans of planning reform have been on somewhat of a journey on this over the past few years where we, we first came into this issue and, thought, well, you know, the, the obvious thing to do here is just to loosen up and liberalise planning restrictions in a very broad and general way uh, and economically i think that makes a lot of sense but politically it's proven to be impossible and there's this kind of iron rule of housing reform in the uk that if you don't appease the nimbies as they're often called then you won't get it done uh, so you have to do something that's a bit more politically savvy if you really want to get more development and the NIMBYs are not in my backyard. And you were talking about that self-interest of people don't want to bring in low-income housing specifically to their area because it could, could drive down housing prices. Do you have a proposal or a general strategy for how you could defeat that self-interest and help ultimately bring in more affordable housing and push back against some of that NIMBYism you're seeing in, in certain areas? So I think the street votes thing is really what we're focusing on as uh, this, this kind of win-win for people who have their self-interest, um, but but also uh, would be able to benefit from the gains that they get from development. So, for example, if I'm if I'm on a street and the majority of people on my street agree in a vote to give ourselves new development rights subject to a specific design code that makes sure the street looks how we'd want it to, uh, then we could add, say, you know, an extra story to our house, and then we could sell that or rent that and make a very very tidy profit for ourselves a, a recent paper from policy exchange that looked at this in more detail uh, another think tank in the uk working on housing reform suggested that it could create around 110,000 homes a year for the next 15 years if we brought in these sort of rules uh, and the average homeowner that participated in a street vote would make nearly one million pounds as a result uh, and if you use the say, for example, levy capital gains tax on some of the value uplift that you got as a result of that, then you could deliver an awful lot of money to local councils who would be able to kind of provide for the needed infrastructure as a result 
of densification there. So this is this is our kind of big idea at the moment, and one that has been echoed across actually the political spectrum uh, as well as across the the centre right and the kind of think tank and policy wonk space more broadly uh, as something that could solve or or at least have a big contribution in solving that issue that that political issue with making sure that people's self-interest aligns with societal interest. And this isn't uh, necessarily something that is just dreamt up in our own minds as something very similar that's been tried in Israel uh, for several years, specifically if you look at Tel Aviv, um, an Israeli rule known as Tama 38 was brought in uh, a few years ago, and it accounted a very basically very similar to the sort of street votes proposal that we discuss. Uh, and in Tel Aviv, it accounted for around a third of new homes being built in 2018 to 2020. So it's got impact. It's got real world evidence. And most importantly, as well, it's got political buy-in. It's something that we've had a lot more success in convincing even some of the the, the more development skeptic MPs uh, from the Conservatives, but from other parties as well in the UK to, to come on board with and support. Because I think everyone recognises that something has to be done, that there is a housing crisis in the UK of unprecedented proportions. Um, It's just finding the thing that will allow them to keep their seat at the next election uh, if they support it. Because politically speaking, if you're an MP and you support development, uh, you will most likely get voted out of office if you do it in, in any significant quantity. So we need to change. It's not just the incentives when it comes to homeowners themselves, but also the, the political incentives for MPs to be rewarded or at least not as heavily punished for supporting development. And a good way of doing that is by them being able to argue, well, here's a way of boosting the number of homes being built whilst also benefiting your back pocket and delivering local services that are needed. Who do you have to convince politically to get these street votes to be carried out? Is it happening at the local council level? Is it happening at the level of parliament or both? Uh, well, this, this is a, it's primarily central government. So uh, myself and, and many others involved in pushing for street votes have been trying to convince uh, Michael Gove at the Department for Leveling Up. And I think with some success on that, it certainly seems like the, the noises he's been making around street votes, he, he's very interested in that, but also building up uh, broader cabinet support for it as well. So trying to get the Treasury on side, um, you know, discussing things like the fairly clear growth and productivity benefits that you get from uh, more development. Uh, This is something that I think is often overlooked in housing debates. It's not just a question of people being made poorer because they aren't able to afford a house or they have to spend a much higher proportion of their income on housing costs. Um, It's also the fact that people cannot move to the places where they would be able to be best productive or get the jobs where they'd be most productive. Uh, And that's something that has much wider macroeconomic effects uh, on productivity, on wage growth, uh, on living standards than just the the, the brute fact of having to spend more money on your houses. So we've been trying to convince various departments in central government to uh, have something of a coordinated push on this. Um, and as well as you, you kind of our, our theory of change, you'd also look at trying to convince special advisors from various departments and, and things like that as well, just to try and get as many voices within government um, as supportive as possible, but also looking at groups outside government, trying to form broad coalitions across uh, different political perspectives. So there's plenty, of, I mean, 
we are free marketeers and we, we situate ourselves on the center right, but there are plenty uh, of those on the center left uh, or indeed the, the not so center left who are very concerned with the housing crisis and would very much like to see a lot more homes being built uh, who support the street votes proposal. So if the streets votes proposal is taken into effect, if there's more deregulation and housing planning and those street votes happen with different votes occurring in different places, are you worried that a lack of consistent regulation could lead to inequalities in different areas, like with certain areas taking your recommendations and being very successful with other places not? Are are you worried about that inequality if it's done at the more local level? Oh, I'm not so worried about inequality in the sense of some streets, in fact, plenty of streets might not decide that they they want development. They might say, actually, I prefer to have less development and and not take advantage of the the potential gains that I could personally get from this. Um, I think, to be honest, if you look at street votes, if you're a homeowner, um, then you're probably in a fairly good position anyway in the UK. And it's not something I'd, I'd be concerned about. What I'm concerned with primarily and what we always have been is absolute living standards and absolute um, yeah, absolute standards of living. It, I am not too concerned with the impact on inequality. I just want people to be able to afford to live in their own house and rent if they want to, um, but also have the opportunity to, to participate in home ownership because that's something that a lot of people are, are currently have the preference for in the UK, but that preference is being very much frustrated uh, and i think it's it's probably worth just just illustrating how bad it is in the uk and in specific parts of it um, so you look at london right in 1980 the average cost of a house was 24000 uh, pounds and this year it's 500000 uh, pounds and if that had been the case with wage growth uh, if that had kept pace with wage growth what rather that wouldn't be as much of a problem uh, it would still be a problem because you want things to be getting cheaper relative to incomes. You don't just want to constantly have all of your income gains absorbed by housing, uh, as has been the case in rents. But prices in London, house prices have risen about one and a half thousand percentage points above national wages. So we've got this situation of massive lack of affordability and absolutely nothing uh, has really been done about it because of the sort of political problems that I've mentioned. I guess if there's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away with, with relating with government policy and affordable housing, what would that thing you'd like to leave the listeners with be? One thing? Wow. Um, <laughs> good question. It's the supply. It, it's that's my my very simple and I think vitally important insight when it comes to the housing crisis. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. It was very insightful and really enjoyed speaking with you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The next guest joining us is Julieta Peruca, who is the former chief of staff to the UN Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing. She's currently the deputy director for The Shift, an organization stewarding the global movement to secure the human right to adequate housing. Julieta and The Shift take a slightly different approach from the Adam Smith Institute and advocate for housing as a human right that can be threatened due to artificially high demand from investors. Thank you for joining us, Julieta. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm wondering if you could lay out to us your perspective on how you got involved in housing and what you see are the most important elements of securing a global housing. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so I did a degree in international and European law, and I was really keen on getting into uh, human rights law. And I had this amazing opportunity to start working with the then United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, Leilani Farha. And then I, of course, jumped on it. And uh, starting to work with her was kind of a crash course on the importance of the right to housing. Um, it became really clear while we were doing the work of the United Nations Special Rapporteur that housing has been kind of overlooked as this fundamental problem in our society. So we're all struggling to secure adequate housing. We're all struggling to pay our rent. We're struggling to pay our student accommodations. We're all seeing people living in homelessness uh, as we walk down the street. But yet it didn't seem like housing was such a priority for governments when I first started working with the special rapporteur. So that's kind of how we decided, uh, the special rapporteur and I and our team at the time, to really try to build momentum and raise the profile of the right to housing, not only because it was becoming such an acute crisis, but also because the right to housing itself and promoting a human rights approach to housing was kind of a really amazing solution to the housing crisis that was that was definitely being overlooked by governments worldwide. And a home is so central to everyone's lives. I guess, why do you think housing is being neglected in public policy? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, as you said, when we talk about the right to housing in particular, we talk about it as this kind of right that has all of these other tentacles. You can't really enjoy many civil and political rights if you don't have a right to housing or an adequate standard of living, right? It's very hard to have uh, full enjoyment of your right to health if you don't have a place to sleep and a place to eat and a place to feel safe. Similarly with education, as you can imagine. So housing really is central to, to our standard of living and to our enjoyment of all of our other rights. I mean, think about being a, a a citizen in the world without having a home to live in. Think about how hard it is to vote if you don't have a home or to um, enjoy your freedom of expression if you don't have a home. So it's so central. But then what we're seeing on the other hand is that housing is really central to our economies, our national economies, to global finance. So there is a big tension there between how essential housing is for our ability to live, but also how essential housing is for government economies and for global finance as a way to leverage profits, to leverage capital, to store capital, to hide capital. So there's a really big tension there as to, as to the importance of housing for both our personal lives, but also for our, our economic well-being. You're right to point out that housing plays such a central role in the global economy. I guess, do you have any any reason to think why the market can't just come in and fix this? If it's, if housing is so important to the global economy, why isn't the economy just naturally self-correcting correcting this issue? Do you, do you have any insights on why you think that would be the case? Well, I think that governments would have us believe that, you know, housing is really a supply and demand issue. So the reason why we're experiencing an acute housing crisis now is because there just isn't enough supply. But what we're really seeing at the moment is 
that there is a complete distortion on the demand of housing. So the economy can't fix the current situation as it is right now, because what we what we value as housing at this moment is really a place to park profits, to extract profits, and not what housing is intended for, which is, you know, the social function of housing. It was a place to live, as a place to raise families, as a place to grow up, to eat, to sleep, etc. So I don't think that governments are really confronting um, kind of what is threatening our ability to access housing. And that really is the immense amount of global capital that's that's floating around at this moment and really having nowhere else to park but in our housing systems. So we're, we're hearing a lot from governments when, when we talk to them about the housing crisis and about the need to really solve the housing crisis the response that we get is, well, we need to build more supply. We don't have the right supply. We don't we don't have enough supply. But then what we're seeing is that when governments actually build the supply, the people who are eating up the supply are normally investors and not actually people who just need to live in those homes. So that's a really huge distortion. And then the other problematic issue with that is that when you have investors flooding a housing market, that drives up housing prices. So then increasingly middle and low income households get completely priced out. And so then what you see from that is increasing levels of homelessness, increasing levels of intergenerational homes where that wasn't necessarily part of the culture, uh, things like couch surfing. And so then it creates all of these offshoot effects of housing just being totally overpriced and being used for a purpose that it wasn't actually intended for. So if I have you correctly, you're thinking that one of the main reasons why we're not addressing this supply crisis is because of the way we value housing in our economy. Well, I actually just don't think that it is a supply crisis at all. I think it's more of a demand issue and and a human rights crisis more than anything. I actually do think that we especially in the global north, uh, there are a lot of places that have enough supply. We're just not sure that it's being used to actually meet the demand of the people who live in those communities. So we see things like supply being eaten up by short-term rentals or Airbnbs, right? So that is then pricing out a whole bunch of renters that could be living in those homes in a permanent way. Um, we see, uh, you know, even in cities like London, we see entire neighborhoods that are vacant because those houses are just being used as investment tools and nobody's actually living in them. And houses and buildings can go on for decades without having anybody actually living in them while there are people sleeping on the streets. So it's not I wouldn't characterize this as a supply crisis at all, actually. I really would characterize this as a demand crisis and governments being unwilling to regulate demand for particularly investor-driven demand for housing. And how do you think government should go about regulating this demand? Well, I think through policy would be the best way, right? So we have seen some things that have 
maybe a little bit of an inkling of hope. Um, so, for example, we've seen demand on uh, speculative, speculative investments in certain places where people can't buy a home and then flip it within one or two years to resell without paying a lot of taxes. So that then decentivizes investors from coming in, buying homes, flipping them, and then selling them for a greater profit. Um, we've seen some governments, for example, put regulations on short-term rentals like Airbnbs in order to um, have those homes re-enter the long-term rental market. And in some ways, that's been successful. Um, we've seen governments like Barcelona, for example, um, expropriating vacant units that are being held by banks uh, to be used for low-income families. So there are things that are out there as far as regulation, uh, the regulation of demand that seem to be working. But I think what we're calling for is for governments to really do a fulsome assessment of their housing systems and try to understand where the demand is coming from and then actually be able to establish regulation to curb that demand. So uh, one of the big things that we're dealing with, particularly in the, in the North American and European context, is uh, private equity entering rental markets, so becoming these big corporate landlords. So you'll have private equity firms like Blackstone or BlackRock, for example, coming in and buying swaths of housing sometimes entire neighborhoods, and then flipping those homes for rentals, and then trying to extract as much profit as possible from renters. And this could be something that could be very easily regulated, right? Uh, private equity firms, and in the way that they function within the re uh, real estate market, which is normally through real estate investment trusts, have really favorable tax policies that they're able to work in this in this way. So it would be as simple as assessing the way that our tax systems work and who is benefiting from our tax systems and how is that impacting the housing crisis? That could be a very actually simple and immediate way to make changes within the housing systems. But it's for that to happen, governments really need to look at their housing systems, look at who the players are in their housing systems, and then be willing to regulate them, even if that at times means that they're going to be putting off global finance and powerful private equity firms. So your organization is called The Shift. For our listeners, would you be able to outline what exactly you see that shift is being and what you think is the most important thing that's needed to bring about that shift in the world? Yeah, so when we talk about The Shift, what we're really talking about is um, we need quite serious and fundamental paradigmatic shifts. Uh, the first one being that we really do need to shift the way we view housing from a commodity to that of a human right. That's really important. Um, and then the other shifts are paradigmatic shifts around the way that we view the victims of the housing crisis and those experiencing human rights violations in the area of housing. So uh, as societies, normally we have a tendency of viewing, for example, people living in homelessness as at best people who have mental health issues and can't manage to stay in a home. And at worst, we view them as criminals. And what we're saying is 
people living in homelessness or people who are precariously housed or couch surfing are also experiencing egregious violations of human rights. And they're experiencing um, the effects of a housing system that doesn't work for low and middle income people, that doesn't view housing as a human right. So there's a lot of shifts that need to happen there around how we view you know, people who are really experiencing the worst of the situation at the moment so that we can create societies that can, you know, include people who are low income, people who have experienced marginalization in our communities. Um, so those are kind of the biggest shifts that we're talking about when we talk about the shift and the ambitions of our organization. And the way that we feel like governments need to shift in order to address the housing crisis at the moment is to really appreciate and and embrace a human rights framework in the area of housing. Um, normally, when we think about human rights, we think about kind of these airy fairy ideals, but actually in the area of housing, uh, the right to housing is a really well-defined and concrete right. And it provides governments with a very clear path forward on the steps that need to be taken in order for them to actually be successful in achieving and realizing the right to housing. So things like developing uh, national housing strategies that are based in human rights, it's a very concrete way in which governments can take steps forward to achieve the right to housing. Um, other things like making uh, the right to housing a justiciable right, something that people can actually claim is a really important step in realizing the right to housing and, and providing constant feedback for governments to be able to assess whether the policies that they're putting in place to address the housing crisis are actually serving the people that they need to serve. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with your perspective. It's, it's been great hearing um, from you and what your organization is doing, and we're very grateful for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. After discussing frameworks for housing policy, we'll be shifting to housing development and practice. Our next guest is Jonathan Cortell, a managing director overseeing mixed-use developments at L&M Development Partners. L&M is a full-service real estate development firm headquartered in New York City in the United States that specializes in affordable, mixed income, and market rate housing with a responsibility for more than $9 billion in development and investments as of early 2021. John, thanks for joining us today. We're talking about housing and urban inequality. So I was hoping you can tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, more specifically what you do, and then more about affordable housing in the U.S. Well, fantastic, Melissa. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, so my name, Jonathan Cortell. I'm a partner uh, and principal at LM Development Partners, a private enterprise that has grown over time through the su successful implementation of partnerships with public sector enterprises. So uh, ours is a business that identifies sites for redevelopment. We do so in partnership with communities. We raise capital through public and private sources. We collaborate with towns and, and locales to design uh, buildings for construction. We happen to have a construction arm, so we're building the products we design, and then we have an, a management company that that you know that we have affiliated with that also is responsible for sort of maintaining the asset once complete. Ours is a, a unique firm. 
in many respects because yep. we are a for-profit company, but that we function with very much uh, yeah. a social purpose to add to the streetscape, fill in gaps in communities and add to the communities as a whole. Thanks. I, so if, if I can put words in your mouth, maybe kind of a double bottom line organization, the concept of doing well and doing good in a community, but also from a business and profitability perspective. So that's right. Would you say that this model is, you know, how most affordable housing is built and financed in the U.S.? And what is the role of the local, state, or federal governments? And uh, what's the role of the private partnership? I think this is a ours is a, a firm that that has similar similarities with others across the country. Ours is a relatively new business. However, we saw our business sort of jump started in the '80s as federal government legislation enabled a program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which has become the most prolific source of affordable housing nationwide. Um, the byproduct of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program is a, you know, an industry of affordable housing developers who use the credit, sell the credits to private investors or financial institutions and use the credit proceeds to, in combination with private debt or public debt to build the assets, build housing. We have affordable housing in our DNA, but have evolved and expanded our executions. Um, we occupy a space in New York City where uh, pressures to account for the affordable housing needs of population is intense. And some of that is induced by the relatively high cost of living. The New York City landscape is partially uh, impacted by the relative cost of land and thus the relative density that is supported on the land. So we're able to build more units on land than one might build in suburban locales. I'm always surprised by the conversation when one leaves New York mm. because the scale and density supported in those different locations, is a, it's just a very different threshold. Uh, 40 units an acre is one bar that people have used in some some you know close in suburbs, and that just seems sort of laughably low when considering some of the developments in New York City that accomplish so much density on so little land. So, so the local, state, and federal governments have a material part to play. Some of it is as simple as helping to define what it is that we're trying to do. Um, one of the questions you might have asked me is like, define affordable housing. Well. Affordable housing is somewhat subjective, right? It's it's affordable to the consumer in question. But at the same time, you know, we've grown to accept the federal parameters as guidelines. So the feds in the United States have defined uh, affordable housing by something like 80% of your air, median income for the area. Mm -hmm. And that so that can vary, vary by place. So it's, you know, it's a sort of a moving target. And then housing that, that is affordable to the person um, so that they're spending no more than 30% of their income on housing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's variable too, because it's clear that you're not getting the same housing in every locale. So the market may have gotten to a place in each area where a f that which you can afford um, may be 
you know, sort of eye of the beholder, you may be willing to pay 50% of your income in New York City because, you know, you're not dealing with some of the maintenance expenses that you might have in a apartment complex in some other locale. Uh, I want to go back to something you you said earlier around this concept of land usage and local, you know, regulatory or municipality bodies and how that can impact what is built and how densely. So in your experience, given I know you have developed in areas outside of New York City, how do you kind of think about how regulation or, or local laws could impact supply? It's a it's a material consideration. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we can start with things like rent control and rent stabilization, which is artificially constraining supply because it's keeping people in place, especially those people whose incomes are escalating their their rent levels as a percentage of income are plummeting. So you're you're sort of um, whatever affordable housing stock was maintained by the rent stabilization is, in fact, now going mm-hmm. to people who no longer need it. Maybe on a sidebar, San Francisco can be a punching bag in some respects because San Francisco has an extraordinary appeal such that there's enormous market demand. And yet there is they're not at all keeping up with it in in supply. Now, some of that is because they've constrained huge swaths of the of the city with zoning that that limits the height and density permitted and when they've when they've talked about upzonings the upzonings have actually been repelled by um, local stakeholders who may not want that in their backyard thus san francisco's overwhelming demand for product is contrasted with the limitations on supply if only efficient delivery of those units on those plots of land could help meet demand, obviously price could be could be positively mm-hmm. affected or reduced. We think of um, regulation in other respects. We're, we're simply in some markets, mm-hmm. we're not building fast enough. So if it takes uh, two years to develop and have approved plans, that not only is a barrier to the process, it's a barrier mm-hmm. to the entry. So the timeline to delivery shouldn't be that long if we are adhering to past precedents. And it's interesting because I wonder how many of our designs are material evolutions from the last projects we've worked on. If the same building department is seeing the same set of plans, it may be um, a shorter distance between two points simply to highlight what is different from the last submission not have them read review the whole package for compliance. I think we've we've been interested in evolving. I think one of the things that has defined uh, our firm is a willingness to continue to meet and exceed uh, the performance of our last project. Um, my guess is that some of that is born out of New York City's sort of landscape, maybe it's competitive landscape. And we're, we're potentially both the beneficiaries of that because we got better products, but we're also perpetuating the regulation because we are in fact, uh, encouraging best practices Mm -hmm. that are then imposed on sort of the market. And so I, I wonder whether it just behooves us to regulate, but regulate with a little bit of a soft touch. Um, if we can 
um, as communities across the country and if, if not the world, state goals and whatever limitations one wants to impose to facilitate the executions. There, there may be too much detail in the regulations such that um, there's always an opportunity to be tripped up. So it, it sounds like, you know, hitting, hitting the, the right balance for affordable housing is a multi-pronged approach, right? It's, it's this delicate balance between smart regulation and overly cumbersome, probably restrictive regulation. Uh, it's also allowing supply to at least somewhat track demand, growing populations, uh, increasing needs. But it's also thinking about how we utilize, you know, the finite resources we have, land, et cetera. And I think there's also a natural tension, particularly in urban areas, between this concept of gentrification and nimbyism. And so thinking about all of these these issues and, and these barriers to affordability, if you will, what are some of the key issues or area things that you've seen policymakers, both at a local, maybe state or federal level, implement that has worked? Or what do you think policymakers need to be thinking about differently as it relates to, to housing and urban inequality? Well, one of the things I think is sort of a key premise is that uh, affordable housing development as I alluded to in the first instance, has been executed in sort of 100% affordable settings where um, those tax credit proceeds are the primary source of financing and the developer in question is likely to pursue only the fee and not have a long-term motivation for quality preservation and, and maybe assuring positive outcomes for residents over the long term. That is not the case where developer equity is a source of capital for the transaction. The developer equity is stuck in projects and the goal would obviously be to sustain the quality of those projects. So at some point, the equity gets a return on that equity and a return of that equity. So we have been proponents and will continue to be um, you know, focused on implementing mixed income tendencies can you explain mixed mixed income and mixed use for the audience? Sure. So, I mean, we define we define mixed income pretty broadly to mean anything with a range of in, of targeted incomes, and residents therefore can qualify or uh, can occupy units almost regardless of their income. There will be units designated at various incomes. So, if somebody shows up with income of X, there will be a unit for them. Um, in, in specific instances, that can mean unregulated market rate is co-located with deeply subsidized affordable housing, or it can simply mean a range of subsidized regulated affordable housing. You know, regulated affordable housing can be, again, defined subjectively. Uh, the federal guidelines for affordable housing are for low-income housing in general are 80% of AMI or lower, the area median income are lower. Uh, but in some markets, you know, it there's a gap in supply at higher income levels. So we might say regulate the units at 120% of AMI and therefore in, uh, enable mixed income housing to serve that band of income as well as mm -hmm. that which is lower. Um, mm -hmm. On the other side of things, mixed use, we've defined broadly to effectively mean residential and anything else. Residential and retail, residential and community facility, residential and healthcare, residential and academic. Um, we like to co-locate those in part because 
we have found over time that um, the activation of the ground floor is not easily accomplished by the residential alone. And, you know, whether it's uh, downtown London, downtown New York, or Main Street USA, we would expect the ground floor to be better activated by a, a retailer who is uh, outward facing, receiving members of the public, you know, to serve whatever product. And I'd like to believe that um, opportunities exist in markets to promote affordability above the ground floor retail and the retail becomes an opportunity to attract rather than repel people or not repel people, but not say come hither to the people who walk by on the street. There's a positive engagement that can be achieved with affordable housing. If the affordable housing caps a coffee shop or, you know, a daycare facility or, you know, they're the, um, municipalities where we have worked really find as catnip job creation as part of the enterprise. And so mixed use directly addresses that in a way that a traditional affordable housing or rental product generally can provide. We find it natural to do a, a, a resident superintendent and then have people work for him to him or her porters or handymen to support building maintenance. That does not provide for a huge swath of employment opportunity in the way that, you know, a healthcare facility, ambulatory care facility might provide. So uh, I think that we as a kind of a development community um, may be better able to, to satisfy the affordable housing demand while also providing long-term employment opportunities for residents and others if we can do so in, con in the context of, of towns and cities where there is retail already present or underutilized sites where this kind of thing might fit nicely into it. Um, it makes it easier for the community to digest because they're getting more out of it. And, you know, the residents may be, may be better supported because they've got retail downstairs. Yeah, I mean, I guess just thinking about walking around any major urban area, what's not to like about bringing in some diversity into the community? Diversity could be access to a healthcare clinic or a senior center or community facility or a new mom and pop restaurant. And not only is that enticing for the people that live in the building, but also for the community in which you're constructing or renovating a new development. Exactly. Exactly. So what are you most hopeful about in the future of housing? Sometimes when you hear conversations, it does seem rather bleak that the affordability gap continues to widen. There is a shortage of land and a dearth of building supply. So what 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 are you hopeful about? I, I mentioned the word uh, evolving or evolution. I think that I think we have to continue to evolve in in answering the questions and problems that are raised. And some of it, I think, is believing that some of the lessons are transferable from the jobs that we have done um, and acknowledging that a lot of the work is replicable, you know, whether whether it's the design of an apartment um, architecturally, um, which is seems eminently replicable um, or it's a financing device. One of the things I think is interesting in my research of late is that the, the affordable housing community across the country is not 
in one place. And that may be true worldwide, that the execution of, of housing and affordable housing specifically is it's sort of a different stage of maturation in every market. And, um, you know, I'm surprised that, for example, there are communities that are not yet ready to offset property taxes on the value of the affordable housing created. Um, these ha affordable housing units in some locations simply don't have income sufficient to pay property taxes that would be applicable to, you know, a market rate unit. And therefore, um, expectations should be lowered. And foregone taxes seem to be a digestible way to, uh, to offset affordable housing in markets where that housing does not exist. I couldn't couldn't agree more with you. It's hard to make a project pencil if there is not enough money to cover all of your expenses. Exactly. And in order to keep a project affordable, you can't keep escalating at the traditional, what you would call unregulated market rent. Uh, that is what prices people out in the first place. Well, John, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts on not only affordable housing, but also mixed income housing in the U.S. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We have mostly discussed housing policy so far in middle to high income countries, but now we will be shifting focus to housing policy in low income contexts. Our final guest is Oliver Harmon, who is a cities economist for the International Growth Center and is based in the Blavatnik School of Government here at the University of Oxford. His research focus is in constructing sustainable urban housing in fast-growing and low-income cities, and he has a forthcoming paper coming out that will address housing policy in low-income contexts. Thank you for joining us, Oliver. No worries. No, it's a pleasure. It was only a short walk up the stairs, so I um, couldn't say no, could I? Wonderful. So many developing countries are experiencing or are expected to experience a massive future population growth. What do you think are the most important policy actions governments can take in advance to address these rising population pressures on the housing market? Cool. Well, um, yeah, it is a big, uh, it is a big question. I think just to to begin, it's worth putting that population growth in uh, in context. In my opinion, particularly when we're talking about low-income countries, I know. Low-income countries, particularly some of my work is in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, these these cities are are growing at rates of sort of four percent a year, um, which is quite you know quite considerable. There's some mad fact from um, from LSE cities that something like Lagos is increasing by 85 people per hour. You know, which is quite maddening when you think about how you can how public policy is going to adapt to that speed of growth. In comparison, um, middle-income countries are about, you know, this is, of course, all broad brush, but middle-income countries are about 2%, and high-income countries are about less than 1% of this kind of same rate of um, people kind of moving to, uh, particularly, well, the population growth and the movement to cities. I think those are the two things that we need to balance. You've also got high levels of population growth, but also this kind of often a, a driving of kind of rural urban migration as people either leave rural areas and... Um, and the kind of difficulties they might be having and move towards cities in, in search of kind of opportunities. So that's the kind of um, the level of kind of future population that we're dealing with. So with that, the I think some of the most important um, policy options, or at least something we often talk about, is sort of demarcating land on the outskirts of cities for these residents to come into. 
Now, that can look like uh, we have a great example from Hargeisa where they've just kind of driven or just kind of put little um, where the roads might be. So they haven't even built roads, but they've kind of demarcated where the roads might be so that in future, when it comes to people moving into the city, there's kind of a clear grid as to where houses are going to be. Because what happens if that's often not the case is that people still move to the city and the the houses get built in a kind of a haphazard way that's not necessarily conducive to efficient and kind of functional urban form. And that is kind of a tension we see. There's another great example in, uh, I think it's Valadipur in um, Colombia, which I've definitely mispronounced. And they, they do the similar thing where they line the where the edges of the roads are going to be with trees. And it's a similar kind of signal to both real estate developers and citizens and kind of people with their housing as to where these uh, houses are going to be. In, in addition to that demarcation, I think the other important thing is, is to deliver basic levels of infrastructure to these sort of housing plots as well. So we, yeah, these can be kind of um, basic kind of drainage, basic, basic sewerage. And, and that, because that is often the role of public policy, right, is to provide those local public goods. Those aren't the kind of goods that real estate developers are necessarily going to want to do or be incentivized to do, um, but they are the kind of the the kind of public policies that actually will bring the most sort of public good um, at the end of the day. And there's some other wonderful evidence that's come out recently, looking at Tanzania from this World Bank Sites and Services study in the 80s, I think, where um, something like two dollars. I've got it in my notes somewhere, but I'm not going to be able to flick, find it in time. It's it's sort of two dollars of this sort of sites and services per, I can't remember the actual metric, but uh, anyway, it, it enhanced the land value by a considerable amount and increased the density of these neighborhoods in a way that, well, cities that don't do that have to retroactively fit. And that's the difficulty is because this infrastructure is needed, but if the cities don't do it first, it costs, I think we often say, three times more to retroactively fit it. So those are, I think, the two kind of um, important policy actions for kind of not getting the ground right for the housing delivery, I would say. And so I guess delivering that housing in advance, that pre-planning, and also providing those public goods along the way, what do you think are the largest obstacles for developing countries in, in bringing about this vision? Is it just a lack of capital, or are there deeper problems at play? It's a good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, that kind of long-termism, short-termism public policy, kind of tension, I suppose, Thinking back to that um, Tanzania example, you know, that was uh, delivered in the 1780s, which is only really seeing its benefit now. You know, if you were someone that was going to be making these kind of these decisions in office, what, what, and you're going to tell people that you're going to be giving them sewers and drains and roads in 20 years, that's not really particularly interesting to your kind of common, common voter. So I think that is a, yeah, a big, um, a big struggle, kind of being able to remove people from that political cycle, I suppose, a bit more and getting them to view with a 20-year time frame rather than the five-year time frame, which often people do instead. I've worked in um, environments where it was just, you know, the housing policy was literally just giving people land. You know, that's very attractive to the average citizen, the average voter, but it doesn't actually give them any much kind of long-term benefit, much long-term connectivity to public services, to jobs, to opportunity, which is something I think I'll um, touch on a bit later. I think the other broader kind of impediment to uh, you know, affordable housing, particularly in low-income con contexts, is exactly that. They are low-income. And there isn't kind of the capital often, often available, both within the, um, 
within the state, within the local government, and for the citizen as well. So you often find that a lot of the housing that's being provided at the formal level is is way above the um, what incomes can actually afford. I think there's some recent research my colleagues just done in in Lusaka in Zambia that I do have here, and I have just been reading that the you know, the newly built formal house is equal to about 25 years of salary for the average urban household. I mean, that's yeah, it's truly it is um it's just way out way out of um kind of, of of budgets, I suppose. So that's the kind of the other tension that the limited resources, the scarce resources available. Um, I suppose is what pushes me back to the first answer where you have to kind of pick on these slightly cheaper, more long-term, let's say, solutions around the demarcation of land and around this um, these infrastructure because they're kind of typically cheaper and they coordinate expectations. They coordinate expectations of other actors to know where they should be putting their houses, where they should be actually putting their investments because there is that kind of that grid system, system and that kind of knowledge of where um, development's going to occur. And so looking within the environment of developing countries, how does that environment differ from constructing affordable housing and crafting policy around affordable housing? And how does that differ from the challenges and contexts within developed countries and very wealthy mm. countries? Uh, so I think uh, I kind of began to touch upon it, but I'll develop on it a bit more is this, is this kind of tension with, um, with income. When I was looking at this paper, something that I found particularly, well, interesting, you know, as someone who... Spent, lives in Oxford and spends, let's say, you know, over forty percent of my income on housing. Um, being Oxford, being the expensive city it is, actually, conversely, in a lot of, in this case, sub-Saharan African cities, the amount that's spent on housing is actually around kind of ten, twelve percent. So it's less as of a of a general expenditure, because where the bulk of the money is going is on kind of uh, food. Often, I think fifty percent of um, Again, this is across, on aggregate, 50% of um, incomes is spent on on food. So there isn't actually that large amount that can be spent that is available for kind of um, for housing costs. But ultimately, you know, these materials that often input into the housing costs are the, um, are the same kind of materials. They're the same kind of materials that the same kind of concrete we're sitting in here is not too dissimilar to the same kind of concrete that is our building, some of um, you know, our building cities elsewhere around the world. Difficult, the difficulty is is that often you know the concrete and cement actually costs more to get to a lot of these places. So not only do you have the lower incomes that's kind of restricting the um, what houses you can build, you kind of have the materials often themselves are um, still as expensive, if not more, um, which yeah can be particularly um, particularly tricky, I suppose. And I think that is a that is a tension. I think also. The yeah the general financial mar- markets as well in terms of not kind of at the broad level but in terms of basic things like mortgage finance, very few um, very few people can access that kind of capital. If you're talking about house ownership, it's only kind of the top ten percent in many cities that can kind of get that leverage that kind of capital available because there isn't quite the financial inclusion in the same ways. And that's not something we necessarily uh, think about when we when we with the with a kind of developed country context instead. And so supply and demand factors are really important for affordable housing and how that's set. Do you think it's more important for policymakers to focus on the demand side or the supply side uh, for for these kind of countries in these contexts? I think the demand, you know, the demand is so high, as I alluded to at the beginning, because some of these sort of growth rates and these urbanization rates are so high, that if you don't kind of 
focus on that or at least engage with that aspect of things the kind of the these pressures will lead to to self supply i suppose in a way and this is where the the other aspect that i don't think we think about think about so much in developed countries compared to many um developing low middle income ones is this sort of role of um informality you know so many many cities around the in low income you know in low income areas are inherently informal again my colleagues research in Osaka has found that i think 63% of the city is informally built you know these these aren't sort of yeah these are very different constraints to what we have in oxford to what we have in london where it's about kind of how i how i can find some uh new nicely built flat myself it's you know these individuals are um they yeah they ultimately are often building these kind of their habitation themselves which i think is which i think is interesting so there's that kind of there's that press release in a in a um in another way and but often that the difficulty that that informality brings is is something that as a city's economist we like like to think about talk about is the you can't really build high or densely informally and if you can't build high or i mean you can actually build kind of densely but it's an informal density that doesn't actually isn't very inherently um economically beneficial but if with, without that kind of that density you lose the access to opportunity and you lose the ability to kind of have good um or connect to public transport to find jobs and employment and this is something that housing policy is often missed out on i think and it's one of the kind of continual failures that is often cited is that people often just view houses as houses and they kind of le- forget the the location factor to a lot of these aspects and when you forget about this location factor you forget about what people are actually wanting often their homes to be and that is to have access to opportunity to have access to jobs there's a number of government provided housing schemes i think in south africa um in i think there's another one in tanzania where people provided these sort of nice new houses on the outskirts of cities and you know not many people moved in they were given them on in many cases to try and remove these you know um citizens from informal areas in the cities and not many people actually moved in because they prefer to be closer to economic opportunity than they would to have a nicer house on the outskirts that was kind of disconnected to their community to public services and to other aspects like that so i think that's kind of um yeah i i found that kind of particularly interesting in uh in looking into this a bit more So looking at all these features, do you think do you have a particular country in mind in the developing world that you think is handling the sustainable housing crisis the best? Like do you have an example that we can look to as as guiding like what an mm. ideal policy regulator should be? It's it's always looked tricky to to you know think about guiding examples and to draw too much from them because I think you know so much you know as we are taught so often local context matters so much and uh but i i do think you know one area that seems to be i think ethiopia is doing some quite useful um housing policy i think they have a number of like you know ticks in their box so to speak they're managing to get a good level of of density on the on the outskirts of cities in they're managing to design um the the kind of the allocation of these properties in a way that is interesting they have some lottery system in place that allows people to or encourages people to kind of move out and there's research being done at the moment um the IGC is actually funding is to how kind of beneficial that research how beneficial that kind of policy is um 
I think they're also balancing the the need for urban expansion, which is a need because of so many people that are moving to these cities, with the me- need to kind of densify at the at the core. In, often we people like I have just done talk about density in many ways, but I think there's some research from New York Marin Institute looking at a number of low-income cities that shows that only actually um, I think 25% of this kind of these um, you know large population growth that we spoke to earlier is actually going to be able to be housed within increasing density within cities. A lot of it is going to have to be on the outskirts or in kind of on the peri-urban. But the question is, is that going to be done in a in a in a formal way that can be, or in a way that um, can can kind of yeah bring these benefits from uh, from yeah well, I suppose well structured cities and well planned cities, or is it going to be in a way that um, which is often the case right now in a kind of a sprawling um, in a sprawling way that kind of is a bit disconnected, and I, there are there are very important um, you know consequences both for both for livelihoods but also for environment in in those kind of um, in those consequences, the sprawling cities, they move into their agricultural areas. They are inherently more carbon intensive. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's yeah, there's a lot of other kind of negative consequences that uh, that come from that. that. I think often we don't think about, but need to be thought about more. I suppose uh, in light of every, all the kind of discussions that we're having right now around climate. Well, with that, thank you so much for telling us all of this and for taking the time to join us. It was a really, really nice conversation. It's a pleasure, Alec. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, and thank you for listening in. Join us next time when, in honoring International Women's Day, we'll be discussing how to empower and support women's labor participation through public policy. This podcast was created by students at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. Special thanks to our guests, Julieta Peruca, Daniel Pryor, Jonathan Cortell, and Oliver Harmon. This episode was co-hosted and developed by Alec Grieven and Melissa Lockett with support from Clara Nick Lachlan, Livy Beha, and Nikunj Arwal. Our executive producers are Reed Leask and Livy Beha. 